Our gospel reading this morning is from the 21st chapter of St. Matthew. Jesus told them another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a fence around it. He dug a wine press in it and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. Now, when the harvest time had come, he sent his slaves to the tenants to collect his produce, but the tenants seized his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other slaves more than the first, and they treated them in the same way. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and get his inheritance." So they seized him. They threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. Now, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? Well, they said to him, he will put these wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at the harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, Jesus said, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that proclaims the fruits of the kingdom. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they realized that he was speaking about them. They wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because they regarded him as a prophet. Word of God, word of life. Thanks be to God. When we first moved to uh, Salisbury 11 years ago, uh, our neighbors had two little kids, a boy and a girl. Separating our house, even to this day, is a 25-foot-long grapevine, muscadine. It's not my favorite grape, I have to admit, but we thought it was pretty cool to have an established grapevine already in in the yard. And officially, for the record, uh, it was our yard. The the previous owner had planted it just inside the property line, but, but in truth, it was a playground. Most days, a little boy wore camouflage and boots and carried in his arm a a toy rifle, sometimes a Jedi sword, uh, to protect us, he said, to protect us from the enemies. We went to bed at night uh, feeling pretty safe and secure thanks to his good hard work. Well, in addition to to patrolling the area, he set up army battles underneath that grapevine with plastic army men, the same kind that I had when I was five years old and probably many of you had uh, as well. But what he had that I didn't have were grapes, or what he said were cannonballs, uh, perfect for knocking over enemy troops and invading uh, armies. Every now and then, his sister would join him in the onslaught, in the battle, grabbing grapes off the vine, hurling them as hard as she could at the enemy and sometimes at her brother. Occasionally, the battle would spread, and we'd find grapes everywhere, all over the driveway, grapes I had imagined using at one point for, well, I don't know, maybe wine. Well, one day I said to them both, do you mind uh, not pulling the grapes off the vine? Instead, just use those that had fallen on the ground. Well, this little girl stood up quickly, bright red hair and fire in her eyes. She said, this is our garden, she said. This is our grapevine, laying claim to the border between our two yards. My daddy, he planted it for us. (laughs) 
uh, well, I've never been stood down by a seven-year-old little girl before, I have to admit, but, but I didn't know what to say. I didn't really know what to do. Uh, maybe, as it turns out, I was mistaken. Maybe my memory was bad, or maybe, as sometimes happens, the history that I had been told was not the correct history. But later in the day, I, I, I asked around, and sure enough, the grapevine was part of our domain. The grapes were rightfully ours, <laughs> although, to be honest, I surely did enjoy watching them play underneath it. It became for me a parable of the vineyard. You know, I'll be honest, today's gospel reading is sort of tricky, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's also a parable of the vineyard. Jesus has told several parables of the vineyard, but this time the vineyard is the location of bitterness and anger and even death. Something has gone terribly wrong. In a nutshell, a landowner has planted a vineyard, then he leases it to some local farmers who are to take care of it and and to gather the the grapes at harvest time. But it seems as though the the farmers begin to treat the vineyard as if they are the owners. So so when the owner returns, they refuse to honor the contract that was originally established, going as far as killing any of the owner's employees who have come to to collect the payment, including the owner's son. It's brutal. It's odd. it's, It's crazy. What's going on here? Well, two things strike me as particularly interesting about this parable, this story of Jesus that was first told as parables are told and the purpose, the reason behind the parables, to reveal to us a core truth about God and oftentimes a hard-to-accept truth about ourselves. So that's how I'd like to approach this parable. Uh, First, what's the truth in this parable about God? What does this parable tell us about God? Well, let's look at the landowner, and particularly verse, verse 33, because it tells us pretty much all that we need to know. Jesus says, there was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Um, sort of important, guy builds a vineyard, you get that. More than that, he put a wall around it. Why? To protect it of course, then built a wine press. Why? In anticipation of the harvest that was to come. He was confident that there would be an abundant harvest. And then finally, and interestingly, a watchtower that he placed in the middle of it because, well, even in the best of times, there are people, there are animals who will want to steal from or maybe even destroy the vineyard. It's just the way it goes. But what's next in the parable is, I think, particularly interesting. Once he's done all of that, then he leased it to tenants and he went to another country. Quite simply, he made the available he made the land available to some local farmers who, well, they knew how to how to how to manage a, a a vineyard. They knew how to take care of grapes. They knew what to do with it. I mean, not everybody can do that, but these were local farmers who knew what to do, and and they knew how to produce what would normally be an abundant harvest. So they worked out the expectations. They agreed upon all the different responsibilities. You see, in Jesus' day, the way this thing sort of worked out, and it was very common throughout, throughout Palestine, but one of the responsibilities was to share a certain percentage, an agreed-upon percentage of the harvest with the landowner, and the, the farmers would get the rest. A pretty cut-and-dry process. Normally, they didn't even sign a contract. It would just be by, by handshake. No big deal. So, 
what we have, again, is a landowner who provided a vineyard that had enormous potential to grow a significant harvest. He invited some local farmers in to be a part of the business and trusted them with his investment, trusted them enough to leave town with the full anticipation that they would honor their responsibilities, that they would do what they were called to do. So, what does this tell us about God? Well, it tells us a lot, especially when we remember that Well, this parable doesn't begin in Matthew, it begins in Genesis, the very first book of of the Bible. Because you remember, don't you, that that's when the first vineyard was planted. That's when the first garden was, was established and it was planted by God, right? This Garden of Eden, it was the perfect place, loaded with abundance. Everything that Adam and Eve could ever ask for, could ever need. And it was offered as a gift, pure grace. They didn't deserve it. They didn't earn it. Of course not. It was simply given to them. But at the same time, they were given a responsibility, not a burden whatsoever, but an opportunity to to take care of it. Pretty reasonable, wouldn't you think? I mean, that only makes sense. Someone has to take care of it, and, and they're joining, they're partnering in this sort of investment, in this opportunity, and the beauty and the abundance of this garden. And why? Well, certainly for Adam and Eve, because it would provide for them what they needed, but, but also so that all could enjoy the garden, because there was enough, God said, there was enough for all, more than enough, until and maybe you remember the story, until the serpent enters the picture, convinces Adam and Eve to lay claim for the garden for themselves, which, which they tried desperately to do, not, not for the sake of others, but for their own selfish interests. They wanted to control the garden. So here, all of a sudden, we, we start to see the beginnings of greed and selfishness, of arrogance, of dominance, and eventually of death. All began in that garden on the day that Adam and Eve stopped trusting God and stopped believing in God's abundance, hoping to keep it all for themselves. As Jose Marti wrote, the selfish man is a thief. Remarkably, and I have to admit to you for reasons I cannot fully understand, remarkably, God never gave up. He offered this same gift, the same garden, essentially, a covenant to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses, to the people of Israel, to, to King David. I mean, God is, is offering this covenant over and over again each time. Um, uh, they, however, are falling victim to temptation and worldly greed of failing to trust, to fully trust in God. But God didn't give up. Again, for reasons I don't fully understand, eventually then this God coming to, to earth Himself as Jesus to show us perfect selflessness, to show us, to reveal to us, a a love that is born of sacrifice and of pure grace. That's the truth that we learn about God in this parable. But, But what does it reveal about us? That might be the tricky part, because you know what happens, right? When Jesus, the landowner, turns to the garden, the farmers, the people, they're upset, uh, more than upset, they're just downright angry. Why? They're worried that they were about to lose some of the profit, that, that they'd lose some of their control. It, it didn't matter to them that the garden was broken. All that mattered is that they were able to benefit from the brokenness, right? 
their privileged, arrogant behavior kept others from enjoying the full benefits of, of the garden. And, and when the owner, Jesus, dared to call them out on it, well, you know what happened. They stripped him. They beat him. They humiliated him. Uh, they forced a crown of thorns on his hand, the head. They nailed him to a, to a cross. Jesus, keep in mind, Jesus was sent to restore God's creation. God's garden that had been shared with us, prepared for us since the very beginning of time, but he meets opposition from those who have a vested interest in this world's brokenness, in the garden's brokenness. It's a pattern that we see over and over again, even today. And here's the amazing thing. Here's the gospel. God doesn't give up. I don't really understand why, but God does not give up then or now. You know, of course, the Jesus story. As they nail him to the cross three days later, Jesus rises from the dead. But then, interestingly enough and important to hear and to remember, he pronounces that one day will also rise up a generation that will fully trust in God's abundance and care for this world and all that lives and breathes within it, which makes for us a very important question. We followers of Jesus, are you among that generation? Osceola McCarty is. She was born in Marion County, Mississippi, and lived in Mississippi all of her life. As a young girl, McCarty had dreamed of of going to the University of Southern Mississippi and to become a nurse. But, you know, life happens sometimes, and in this case, family duty stood in the way as her aunt and grandmother became ill when she was just a young girl. So, McCarty had to leave school after the sixth grade in order to care for them, and that also meant to find a job. So, she followed in her grandmother's footsteps. She cleaned other people's clothes, something that she did for over 70 years. Throughout that time, she never owned a car. She never married, never had any kids. Friends would would drive her to church, and she'd push a shopping cart through town for almost a a mile every week just to get her groceries at the grocery store. Just before her death, she sat down with a, a local banker who she knew because it was the bank where she had kept her savings all of those years. Her mama had told her from a very early age to start saving, uh, saving her money, and so she did just that. And when they met together, she brought 10 dimes because she wanted to share with him, show him where she wanted her money, her resources to go after her death. One dime, she said, would go to the church. Uh, a dime would go to three different um, family members who she loved dearly. And then the rest, six times, were what amounted to $150,000 for the University of Southern Mississippi to set up a, a scholarship for girls who couldn't otherwise afford to go to school. That's what it looks like to tend the garden and to tend it well. By the way, that little girl that I spoke about at the, at the beginning, <laughs> the girl with bright red hair who stood me down 11 years ago, well, she's now a college student. She's an artist who paints and really paints beautiful things like fish in particular, beautiful. My hope is that God is forming her into a master gardener, just like Mrs. McCarty, someone who will deeply and passionately care for all of God's creation. 
No doubt, that's the responsibility we've all been given. Amen.